Hey there, Conquerors, and welcome to episode 53 of Conquering Columbus. we got a great show lined up for you today. Our guest is Dr. Stephen Smith of Smith Facial Plastics here in uh, Columbus, Ohio. And he also happens to share our connection to collegiate wrestling. But before we dive into that, I want to take a moment and remind you all, go ahead and look at whatever podcast app you're listening to this on. Click that subscribe button. It really helps us out, and it'll make sure you guys never miss a single episode of Conquering Columbus. The last thing we want to do before we get this episode rolling is take a moment to thank all of our incredible sponsors here at Conquering Columbus. And that starts with AWH. AWH are builders of exceptional digital products for the web and mobile that drive business for select growth companies. With over 4,500 applications developed and 10 million users enjoying AWH applications, they are focused on solving problems and improving lives through better software applications. If you want to find out more about AWH, check out awh.net, which will be linked in the show notes, and tell them Conquering Columbus sent you. Conquering Columbus is also brought to you in part by the Sundown Group. For those of you who don't know who they are, the Sundown Group is an Ohio nonprofit that helps connect entrepreneurs to investors, mentors, talent, and capital through business pitch events, workshops, and classes offered throughout Ohio. More information on the web at sundownfirst.org. And our last sponsor is Facilities Management Express, or FMX for short. FMX is actually founded and headquartered here in Columbus, Ohio. They're a startup software company. What's really cool about them is a lot of competitors in this space, but they made a name for themselves by designing an easy-to-use and tailored-fit facilities maintenance and management software. They serve industries ranging from churches and schools to property management, manufacturing, and fast casual restaurants. You can learn more or check out a free trial at gofmx.com. Mike here again. And if you want to be a sponsor of Conquering Columbus and have your message heard by conquerors across the city, please reach out to me at mike at conqueringcolumbus.com. And one last thing before we get this episode rolling, conquerors, we want to hear from you. There will be a quick survey in the show notes of today's episode. And if you guys could fill that out for us, we'd really appreciate it. All right, conquerors, let's get the show on the road. drop me anywhere on the planet in any environment and I might get you know my head kicked in in the beginning but I'll find a way to survive I'll find a way to get the job done yeah there's a little doubt but you know what once again I think of that guy in my ear I think about stepping up to the stage I think about the challenge like I've lost sometimes but I've won more than I've lost and so like I bet on me any day choosing greatness greatness doesn't choose you you know, you have to choose it. And, you know, it's hard. I think there was a hunger in me. There was a desire just to make a difference. There was a desire to not just be status quo, a desire to not be average. This is Conquering Columbus. Hey there, Conquerors, and welcome to another episode of Conquering Columbus. Uh, today on the show, we've got Dr. Stephen Smith, and he uh, wrestled for the University of Pennsylvania, where he completed a degree in architecture with a minor in art history, before heading to Ohio State, where he graduated from medical school, summa cum laude. He's a fourth-generation Central Ohio surgeon, and today he operates his own practice here in Gahanna. And uh, welcome to the show, Steve. How are you doing today? Very good. Thank good. you. Good yeah, to see thanks you. Thanks for having me here. 
So kind of, we kind of start the show off two different ways. First, we ask what the typical day in your life looks like, and then we completely reverse it and kind of talk about your path to where you are today. So with the first question, what does the typical day look like for you at this point in the stage in your career? Well, a typical day for me, there's, there's two parts to it. Certainly there's the professional part, and then, the, then there's the really busy part, which is my family life and chasing my, my kids around. But a typical day for me, for instance, today I... I woke up and worked out for an hour and then went into to the office and met some new patients, did some clinic surgeries, did some procedures in the office. So, you know, typical 8 o'clock to 4.30 a day with, with patients. And then I usually run off to a practice of some sort or a game. Yesterday we had a playoff lacrosse game uh, for my high schooler and, and uh, tomorrow night it'll be a a third and fourth grade girls lacrosse practice, which which I'm the coach of, so that's a typical day. And then hopefully we can all get together and have some dinner when it's all done. <laughs> and what does the wake up time look like there? Are you pretty early in the morning? Uh, I do surgery at least two days a week at 6:30, meaning I'll make an incision at 6:30. So that's those are the earlier mornings. And, and do you work out before those days? So you wake up at three, uh, four. In the on morning? those days, I'll typically I'll do a surgery that will take me an hour or an hour and a half and then I'll go right to the gym for an hour and then I'll start clinic usually at nine so I, I try to build some physical activity into into the day I try to get a sweat in every day do you have any like unique and we're, we're probably going further along what you do today before we jump back and, and cover the um, background but I'm curious do you have any like things that you do all the time before surgeries that like gear you up to kind of get ready for it or you just jump into things or is there like a ritual that you go through a smoothie and a coffee nice that's secret just ingredients about, yeah, that's just about it, yeah. <laughs> i started drinking coffee my first day of medical school and and that's uh you know I, I i do think it's a secret ingredient i've tried to get my kids to drink it uh, as high school <laughs> students but uh, haven't been successful yet and it's funny how when you're a kid you you have things like that like i hated coffee and now if i go a day without it it's like i'm completely lost yeah so it's just funny how your taste change over time but it's still not that i like it though it's, it's just that it like keeps me alive it's uh -oh. like <laughs> you learn to like something when it keeps your heart beating throughout the day because you're so tired so. well as a graduate student you're uh you will you'll probably consume more than you will later in life <laughs> yeah. so uh but let's take a step back now let's jump back um and touch on kind of what life was like you growing up i mean you're from central ohio area so um talk about your family your siblings uh, and being you know being the son of a uh, family multiple generations of surgeons and yeah. uh, how that kind of led to this point well I, I grew up not too far from here actually my parents live on riverside drive so just <laughs> uh, just down the road in, in upper arlington um, but i was born in new york i uh then we moved to texas and then we moved to Baltimore, and then we moved to Chicago, and then we moved uh, eventually back to Upper Arlington. Uh, is, I, is that pretty typical in the profession to, to move that? Um, I think, I think my dad's scenario was a little more unusual because there was two years as an army surgeon during the Vietnam years. So he went from New York after completing his general surgery. He went to Ohio State Medical School, but he completed his general surgery residency. Uh, or the first two years of internship in 1972 and um, you know it was he, he didn't have a favorable draft uh, number so he went down to DC and enlisted and was able to stay stateside because he had a, a young son and a pregnant wife and and he was an army surgeon at uh, in San Antonio 
and so we were there for a couple years. And then once the Vietnam War was over, he resumed his training and did urology in Baltimore, did a pediatric urology fellowship in Chicago, and then he came to join my grandfather who had started the pediatric urology program in the 1950s at Children's Hospital. Did he, do you have any unique stories that you remember him telling you from his time being an Army surgeon that really stick out to you? Yeah. The, um, part of the time was at Fort Hood, which has been notorious for you know, reasons we don't need to talk about, but it's a large Army base in Colleen, Texas, and um, if you ask my mother's perspective, it was an awful place to live, and <laughs> you know, living on an Army base isn't, isn't necessarily the most charming. Maybe it's changed, but... Um, my dad had a lot of responsibility, you know, just two years of training under his belt after medical school, and, and he was the attending Army surgeon for a large base, and he was in a, a helicopter crash uh, where they were doing some training runs, and um, he had to basically take care of everybody in that Huey that had crashed. Uh, fortunately, there were no fatalities, but, you know, some significant injuries. Uh, he's a urologist, which you know, takes care of the genital urinary tract, but he's done craniotomies. He did a lot of plastic surgery then because he was a surgeon, and surgeons did whatever kind of surgery uh, came through the doors. Uh, so he, he learned a lot, and he said it, it, he had a lot of growth as a surgeon during, during those couple years. And then continuing on with that, I kind of interrupted and sidetracked you there, but um, so you're following up, you're talking about um, where do we leave off in terms of like your background Move, and your childhood? Moving around a bit and coming back to Upper Arlington. Okay. Yeah, yeah, and then we, you know, we moved to Arlington. I went to elementary school in UA, and then um, my dad, who went to UA, uh, switched gears and sent me to a school across town called Columbus Academy. Smaller student body and more opportunity to play sports early. That was important to him because he didn't necessarily have that that experience growing up. And and then I uh, graduated from from Penn uh, after Academy um, and as you know I eventually made it back here but my Academy experience was was great and it was kind of nice you know grew up in Arlington so got to know people in Arlington but also got to know people from all over town uh, mm -hmm. as I attended Columbus Academy right and so uh, when did you uh, you know at what point did you start wrestling and I know uh, that's something we talk about a lot is our connection to wrestling here on the show. And so we were uh, hoping to talk to you a little bit about your career in wrestling, going up through high school and then wrestling at Penn, along with the Foxcatcher Fox yeah. Wrestling Club while you were there. Eighth grade. Eighth grade. Well, late start. My dad bribed me with a ski trip. There was a, there was a urology meeting in Steamboat, Colorado, and <laughs> he knew that I had never been out west. And, and so... He said, if you wrestle this year, I'll take you on that, that, that trip. And I was like, ah, I don't think I want to do it. And, but I did it, and they stuck me out there with a pair of basketball shoes and a singlet. And I'm like, holy cow, I, I, I look different than all the other the kids out here. And I think that, that first year I had a 9-3 and three record. I had uh, nine first-period pins with a head-and-arm throw. And, then, and, <laughs> and the three guys that could defend it uh, beat me. So... It was the only move I knew, and then, uh, but I realized that I had, uh, you know, a little bit of a, of a skill set in that sport, and so started doing some summer camps and made some friends on the team, and and uh, uh, wrestled all through high school, and ended up getting, you know, better every year, and uh, well enough that I had an opportunity to 
do it in college. And so when you got to Penn, I mean, um, you know, it's obviously a great school, very well known. And um, what was uh, what was it like there? You know, competing and at the same time, um, you know, going to school in such a competitive environment. I guess I'm the oldest of mm-hmm. four, and I didn't know any better. So it's just <laughs> kind of like, yeah, seems like a really good school. I really liked the coach. I was uh, our coach was Roger Reina, who. We were his second recruiting class, so he was a young Penn alum and, you know, a little bit more of a buddy at that point in time than a coach, and, and he certainly evolved to have great, great success uh, after that, but it was, a, it was a good fit. It was a historic city. I had an interest in architecture, and, and certainly the history in Philadelphia was, was appealing, but I just, I didn't, I didn't know any better and just said, oh, it seems like a good fit, but... Uh, had an opportunity. I wrestled varsity as a freshman and, and sophomore year and then half of my junior until an injury and then my my career came to a halt because of injuries. I was on the team all four years and uh, even practiced through the beginning of my senior year but I was getting stingers so I had right. some neck issues. Yeah so those nerve injuries can always be tough to come back from so, but um, after that you, so you mentioned you had a degree in architecture and uh, minor in art history but how does a you know, guy who has a degree in architecture and art history, I mean, you go from there to medical school. Uh, it seems like kind of a big change in my mind. So uh, what made you make that shift? And then, um, I guess, how did you decide to go to medical school? It was a really big change. And, uh, you know, I had varied experiences growing up. I did a advertising internship in New York and Chicago. I, I worked in a... Uh, legal department of Occidental Petroleum in Los Angeles. So I was trying to get exposed to something and, and hope that it would uh, click, and certainly the architecture degree, and did a little bit of that after school in Sun Valley, Idaho. But I, I started realizing towards the end of my architectural studies that it might not be the perfect match for the way I was wired. You know, a lot of architecture projects are three months long, six months long, two years long, and I didn't I didn't think I had the patience for that kind of turnover. And then when I thought about what else can I do, uh, my exposures were medicine. And the reason I didn't want to go into medicine initially is, you know, I saw what my dad did, and my dad practiced in a time where he worked at multiple hospitals. He would round at 5 o'clock in the morning before surgery started because he had to get to, you know, three or four different hospitals all over town. When he came to my high school football games, he'd have to come with a bag of quarters, essentially, because we didn't have cell phones. And so if he got a page and had to call the hospital, he'd have to run from the football field up to the payphone and, you know, usually wait in line behind some other doctor that was on call. And... I was like, wow, that's kind of a, you know, it's, it's a tough job. But I think the thing that really steered me away from medicine was my dad would grab me on Saturdays and Sundays to go around with him. And again, this is before computers, cell phones, you know, th- all these devices that we have to answer emails or entertain ourselves. And so he'd stick me at the nurse's station with a, you know, a pen and a pad of paper. And, and uh, I wouldn't see him for an hour and a half. And it was like... That's one thing I'm not going to do is is go hang out in the hospital. So I just uh, that's the reason I didn't have an interest. But when I had some additional exposures that were different than that, 
as I was starting to second guess a career in architecture, uh, there was some appeal. And, and part of it was actually at Penn, being a wrestler and uh, being exposed to the sports medicine and orthopedic departments. I thought, huh, these guys kind of have a cool job. They're working with athletes. They're trying to help make people uh, better or have the opportunity to compete again. So I would say that it, it happened as a student athlete at Penn and, and my own health issues. Yeah. I think it's pretty cool to hear like how when people are younger and they have these unique experiences with certain different professions and careers, how it kind of molds their um, their outtake on it as they get older. And then you have obviously you kind of flipped yours and ended up going into it anyways. But it, it's unique as some people will start off and they have like a unique experience where they have really good experiences of their parents, you know, doing some kind of business. And they say, I want to make that kind of business, you know, and then it kind of forms where you go down the road. And that's just kind of a unique um, insight that I kind of took away from that, not really leading into the question. But one thing I did want to talk about before we got too far down um, into medical school was a little bit on the fox catcher um, aspect. And obviously, that's become an infamous, you know, they made the movie off of it, and there's tons of stories around it, and a lot of things happened with DuPont. Um, what was your personal experience with that, and kind of can you talk a little bit about uh, how that came about in your life? Yeah, absolutely. So we were in Philadelphia, and that's where Mr. DuPont lived, and you know, it was an exciting place to be then because, you know, we'd have Dave Schultz pop into our room, you know, Rico Ciparelli, uh, Dan Shade was our assistant coach. He's the guy I worked out with every day, which was pretty awesome. Um, and Dan lived on the, the farm, and, and he's the guy I spent a lot of time with. And he was portrayed in the movie, he, he, I think by Jake Varner, and he was... His name was Dan Bain, so we all kind of had fun with that as, uh, as <laughs> former Penn wrestlers. But um, And it was neat to see a couple of the Buckeyes that I know uh, in the movie as well, like J.D. and uh, Reese Humphrey. Mm -hmm. And Reese's dad, Jim Humphrey, was one of our assistants at Penn one of the years that I was there as well. So we're pretty entrenched in a kind of historic thing without knowing it. But I remember the first time I went out for... Uh, workouts at Foxcatcher and you know you had these iconic Olympians and national champions in the room and then meeting Mr. DuPont for the first time and The Simpsons was a TV show then and I felt like I had come face to face with Mr. Burns it was just <laughs> a you know an out of place just a, a very very odd character and you know just my gestalt was you know what's what's this guy's connection to, to wrestling? And, you know, later it all unfolded, but um, it was a, you know, great facility and a beautiful part of, uh, you know, the main line of Philadelphia. Uh, and we went there as a team because we had the opportunity to do so. But we'd have the, uh, you know, what's it called? The NWCA Coaches Classic at Penn. We had the mm -hmm. Olympic Trials at Penn. We had all these, these big events, uh, I'm sure, because of the presence of, of DuPont in USA wrestling yeah, circles. It's also like a beautiful campus. And I, I know that they started the RTC program, and I've been following it um, on Instagram a little bit with some of the athletes out there, and they take videos of them working out around the campus, and, like, the buildings are magnificent looking. Oh, yeah, yeah. I mean, it's 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 pretty amazing piece of ground. I mean, it's a horse property, and uh, you're talking about Foxcatcher, right? Oh, no, I was oh, talking Penn? about, yeah, Penn itself. Oh, yeah. Penn's a great campus, and, it, and 
you know, there's lots of alumni that have ended up on Wall Street with, uh, you know, big checkbooks that, uh, you know, <laughs> like to have buildings named after them. So, you know, that's how that's how a lot of those campuses uh, uh, come to be. But it's it's got gorgeous historic architecture. You know, it's a school that was founded in 1740, so it's it's got some iconic buildings, but but it does have varied architecture. It's 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 neat. Um, let's jump back into medical school a little bit here. And um, when you got to medical school, uh, was it a lot different from your experience in undergrad? Even though you know Penn really prestigious university. Yeah, well, absolutely. You know, and, and when I started at Penn, I you know I played rugby my freshman fall year until Coach Reina found out. I you know did a fraternity. I you know I had a girlfriend. I cut forty pounds so I could wrestle varsity. I was I thought I could do it all. You know, by the second semester freshman year, I realized that okay, this isn't. I'm not in high school anymore. So I needed to narrow my focus. Um, but that being said, when I went to medical school, I was married. I got married pretty early. I um, married a great girl from Sun Valley, Idaho, and um, found out the first week of medical school that she was pregnant. And so, you know, and I you found it, it coffee. Like, yeah, <laughs> right I, you found coffee. I had my first cup of coffee. I got it from the, uh, the White Castle on West 2nd Avenue by oh, High man. Street because that's where we were living. And, and uh, one of my good friends that, that used to live here said, you need to drink coffee if you're going to be in grad school, and you ought to get it from White Castle, what you crave. So I had a White Castle coffee in my hand for the first day of classes and, and never looked back. But I was, you know, I was, I was so excited to have the opportunity. And uh, I, f I found out very quickly that I could be a good medical student because you start with anatomy, and anatomy is very visual. It's very manual because you do the dissections, and that's kind of the way I'm hardwired so I could kind of take pictures in my head of of what I saw in the in the lab or in the in the dissection handbooks and so I ended up doing you know really really well and and actually in medical school they they kind of give you real-time rankings of, of how you're sitting in your class and you know once I got through anatomy and realized I was right up there at the top you know you, you get kind of excited you're like wow I'm I'm actually doing pretty well here and and it just it i just kept the ball rolling and you talked a little bit about when the first time we met you had kind of like a process down you created something that you said you followed every single day and it was a structure that really helped you excel can you talk a little bit about that yeah kind of stumbled upon a system and you know when you get so much information just thrown at you each and every day it's a massive amount of information and they don't they don't slow down they uh they want you to learn a lot quickly, uh, or at least that was the way the curriculum was, was shaped when I was going through. And so I met a friend, a guy from San Diego, who's, who's now an orthopedic surgeon here in town, and he met a girl from Central Ohio, so he got stuck here, uh, or so he says, but he loves it the here. Old, the old Mike Minucci story. Yeah, that's right. <laughs> he lives down the street. He lives in Arlington, and, and, uh, um, and he's doing very well, part of a great group here. But... We went through the material together. I went through it in lecture with my coffee. Uh, I'd review it at home once that day. And then what we'd do is we'd basically lock ourselves in conference rooms and get through all the material twice. And he'd take turns teaching it to me. I'd take a turn teaching it to him 
uh, we just did it page by page. I don't know how we came up with it, but the, the concept was to get through the material three times outside of lecture with multiple uh, learning styles. So the, the teaching, the listening, the looking, and I was also, I illustrated a lot, so I had a four-colored pen, and, and if you look at some of my medical school notes, you know, they're, I took pride in them because they, they were, I don't not the kind of art you'd want to look at in a museum, but uh, you know, they mean a lot to me because, because they helped me uh, uh, be successful during that phase in my life. Definitely. You know, that's an interesting concept talking about using, um, because, you know, a lot of people are, you know, we talk about being a certain type of learner, but combining all the different ways you can learn into one to really understand something is, is an interesting concept that I haven't really thought about too much. It makes you wonder if some people, I mean, some people think they're self-aware and I think they think they learn a couple, a certain way, but until you really expose yourself to those multiple styles and you see what absorbs the best, I mean, I don't know how you could ever really know. So it's unique that you just kind of threw them all out there and then kind of took what stuck, you know? Yeah, we, I mean, we got lucky. It, it, it worked. I didn't, I didn't have somebody tell me to do that, um, but it was just, it was trying to find a way to digest a massive amount of material and have another brain help you think about it. Because if he understood a concept just a little bit better than me, he could teach it to me, or we could debate about it, or I could teach it to him. So that's that. I think that was one of the greatest values in doing that. And then when you do that, you need to have a study partner who is dedicated, aligned, and a good communicator. Yeah, you guys, I mean, even though your learning styles are different, you must have been very much the same type of person in terms of the dedication and the way that you um, felt about persistence and locking yourself in a room like that. I mean, what at a more granular level, what did the grind look like from the time that you started class? You said that you would take like a workout break in between, and then are you going until 10, 11 o'clock at night? Pretty much, pretty much. If you ask my wife, I had my notes with me all the time. In fact, uh, our oldest daughter, who's 19, she's she just finished her freshman year at Clemson, and uh, she's in the Honors College there and is doing great and is very happy. She wanted a warm place with big school spirit, and unfortunately they beat our Buckeyes, but uh, <laughs> she's probably still a bigger Buckeye fan than a Clemson fan. But um, Lamaze class, my wife remembers uh, as we were going through the class, I had a set of neuroscience notes in my right hand and you know I was pretending to pay attention to those that were I'm like the baby's just going to come out we're going to have an OB there they, I, I don't I don't I need to learn this not not that so uh, <laughs> she gave me a little bit of hard time about that but uh, um, I missed I missed a couple lectures on the day that she was born but I was right back to it so um, the days were long I always had material in my hand and and I actually I was coaching my brother wrestling at that point in time too and I would I'd be in the corner with with notes so I would coach him I'd have my notes there and in between matches I'd be studying again so I just always had material with me so I don't know if it was to ever to 11 o'clock or 10:30 or midnight you know depend on it depended on if I got those tasks done that were in line with the system that we had put in place Okay, and so from there, what, what made you, so I, if, correct me if I'm wrong, but as I understand it, at the end of medical school, when you start applying for residencies, that is the point at which you decide um, 
what um, what's the word I'm looking specialty. for? Specialty. Specialty you're going to be. So what drove you towards um, plastic surgery and uh, what made you decide to take that route? Well, I, I thought I was going to be an orthopedic surgeon. Sports injuries... I thought, okay, that's what I want to do. That was that's what intrigued me about medicine, or or at least made me think about it again. Um, but as I started thinking a little bit more about my skill set and art history and architecture and being manual and being visual, uh, I had a nice exposure to the Department of Otolaryngology Head and Neck Surgery at Ohio State uh, and a mentor named Dave Schuler. Uh, who was the, the first CEO of the James Cancer Hospital, and I was just fascinated by what he did in the OR. I loved the people in that department and that specialty, and so um, I did not do that sub-I until September, which is late. Usually you, you pick your favorite, you do it in July, which was orthopedics for me, but after a week uh, doing that rotation in September, I chose that specialty, and uh, from head and neck surgery, you can select a fellowship opportunity in head and neck cancer, sinus surgery, skull-based surgery, or facial plastic and reconstructive surgery. And with my art history, architecture background, it just made a lot of sense for me to be in that, that particular field. So I, I, I knew, once I decided on otolaryngology, head and neck surgery, I knew that I would have a probably a likely end up in a facial plastics career. Maybe it's because of Hollywood or there's like some kind of weird, um, like, I don't know if I'm not, I'm not going to use the right word, but I don't use the right word a lot of times on this podcast. So <laughs> Aurora, I guess around like Aurora is not it, but misconception. Yeah. You know, just like plastic surgery you... has this like vibe to it and, and the medical field where yeah. like, you know, and I don't even think I understand enough on how it really works to ask like, detailed and intricate questions about it so can to our listener base who is very naive on it can you describe kind of like what it really is and well the the origin of the word plasticos means to change i I think it's a greek word pardon me if it's a latin word but it's you know one of those yeah one of those yeah it it sounds very greek (laughs) right plasticos um you know it means to change so my father as a as a pediatric urologist did a lot of genitourinary reconstructive plastic surgery essentially so every surgical specialty does some plasty or changing of structures that are there and so facial plastic surgery isn't just doing facelifts and eyelids and and nose jobs it's it's uh, doing reconstructions of half of a nose that might be missing from a skin cancer uh, extensive facial injuries from trauma it can be an auricular hematoma on a wrestler who doesn't want to have a cauliflower ear. So there's Tom says you're the best. <laughs> Gave you a shout out. <laughs> Thank you, Coach Ryan. Um, but it's um, you know it it's a field that you know. For instance, one of the plastic surgery procedures that's very common in my practice is rhinoplasty, and that's a people would call it a you know lay term for that would be a nose job, but. Mm-hmm. The nose is very architectural, and it's it's very much form and function, which is something you learn when you're when you're going through architecture school. And so, a nose that looks a little more balanced and, and might fit a face a little bit better usually works better. So, um, a lot of what we do helps improve function. 
and is it medically necessary? Yeah, it's nice to be able to, to breathe well through your nose. But it's also nice to put a, a facial feature back into balance for somebody who's bothered by it. If you're not bothered by it, then, you know, that's not something you're going to pursue. But if you can, if you can help an individual with their, their self-esteem, uh, I think that's a little different than what you think of in terms of the Hollywood plastic surgery where folks start to look unnatural or unusual. That's, that's not part of my practice. Uh, I will say on occasion you have to fix some of those issues in, in folks where things have been overdone. But if you can leave somebody looking natural or if you can improve the condition or quality of their skin, you're helping not only with appearance, but you're helping with the overall health of that individual. So, yeah, it has a stigma, and, and uh, um, but I think in this day and age, I think people understand it a little bit better than, than when I was growing up, for sure. How does the process work? If somebody comes to you and says, you know, hey, I don't like my nose, do you just know in your head the perfect size to make it or, like, how to shape it, or do you put it into a computer? So that's a, that's a great question, and there are different ways to do that, and it's a, it's a very, very common procedure in my practice. And so the first thing I do is, you know, you listen, and, and look at the, you listen to the patient, you look at the patient, and then I'll take a look at the nasal airway. So I'll look at uh, parts of the airway that are called the nasal valves. Those are areas, areas where airflow can be restricted. I'll take a look at the septal anatomy. I'll take a, take a look at things that can be um, restrictive with regards to airflow. And then if somebody does have some aesthetic goals or they'd like to change the appearance of the nose, I'll, I'll take that patient's pictures and I do put it on a computer program, but it's not a computer program that spits out a recommendation. It's a computer program where I make the changes. And so the changes I make on that imaging program correspond with what I think I can do. So you don't want to give somebody unrealistic expectations. That's a disaster in, in my field. You really have to manage expectations, make sure that the goals are realistic. You know, you can't just put Brad Pitt's or... So making me look like Ryan Gosling is pretty no, we could realistic. Do that. that's, <laughs> that, that's, that's doable. Yeah. Yeah. Some of the other requests I have out there are, are, are challenging, but... But it's it's a fun thing to do, and if you think about it, if you're a, you know if you're an 18 year old girl and you've got an enormous nose and it's distracting or the bump's big and it looks, you know, a little harsh or more masculine, you can really you know, positively change change a young person's life or or an older person's life with uh, with with a good safe uh, surgical effort. Yeah, you know, I've actually broken my nose a couple of times, so I have a slightly deviated septum and. Bit of a bump going on, so I might have to give you a call after this episode. Come you on might, in. I fixed but... lots of wrestlers' noses. <laughs> you might break that computer program, though. Just... Break it? No, it's not going to work. <laughs> I've got, yeah, I've got a couple Olympians under my belt too. So, okay. You know, nobody, nobody, no, nobody around, uh, nobody who's currently competing. But it's, 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 mm-hmm. it's interesting to see uh, damage over many, many years. Yeah, yeah, I'm sure. So, um, what about starting your own practice? So, um. Were there any you know pit stops along the way from residency to starting your own practice, or did you kind of just after residency, okay, I'm gonna open up Smith Facial Plastics? Yeah, so residency was five years. Mm-hmm. Um, I trained at Ohio State in the Department of Otolaryngology, Head and Neck Surgery. I did a fellowship in New York for a year in facial plastics with uh, a mentor who was also a wrestler named uh, Dr. Ed Williams. He's the immediate past president of the American Academy of Facial Plastic Reconstructive Surgery. 
he used to wrestle one of the Bannock brothers, who was an Olympic gold medalist uh, when he was when he was growing up in New York. Um, but I was recruited back to Ohio State and was director of facial plastic reconstructive surgery there for seven and a half years. And you know, one of one of the challenges, one of the great things about being part of an academic department is the collegiality, the teaching opportunities, the um, just the camaraderie. But one of the challenges that's not always great is just it's there are layers of bureaucracy and, and there are a lot of different people involved with decisions and you don't you don't have a whole lot of control over that um, and that kind of comes and goes as leadership comes and goes so uh, I wanted to have a little bit more control over my practice and how I wanted it to operate and how I took care of people so uh, two and a half years ago I went into went into private practice so that's when that's when I started my own practice, but my first seven and a half years were, were at the university. Is it similar to owning your own business in a sense? Like, do you do all your own books, and, or do you have somebody that does it? Uh, my wife does my books. She, <laughs> she's the chief financial officer of Smith Facial Plastics. Um, she was a private banker uh, uh, with various banks in town, went through a couple mergers, and you know had a very nice banking practice uh, at the time that she... Um, retired to take care of our three daughters and then uh, she has come back to work since but you know she spends a day or two a week or a day and a half a week just taking care of you know bills and and those sorts of things that I'm not very good at Um, but yes it is my own business and and I do uh, I have folks that help me with human resources we have an accounting team we have uh, that Ha- they have other practices that they take care of as well. You know, I've got four or five employees, and you know, so you're you're working with those folks each and every day, and they count on you to to be busy and to be productive, so that they can all continue to have jobs that they enjoy. Is it tough to build up your clientele at first when you first branched out? You know, I was really worried about that. I thought, geez, this is you know, this is kind of a daunting challenge, but. I got lucky. It was pretty seamless. You know, a lot of a lot of my patients were my patients. You know, and so it didn't matter necessarily where I was or what I was affiliated with. They they followed me, and so we were we were pretty much busy from the from the start. Now that being said, we've gotten a lot busier. So it's you know it, it's growing outside of of my prior practice. So what do you enjoy the most about being a plastic surgeon? Well, I, I don't think it matters. The thing that I enjoy the most about being a physician is the opportunity to take care of people, help them with their goals. And I'm a people person, and I'm, I, I love meeting new people. I love making connections to people. I love talking to people about where they're from and what their experiences are. It's just a, it's, it's a great way in a, a very intimate setting uh, where there's a lot of, a lot of trust between two people to, you know, get to know some people that I probably wouldn't have an exposure to otherwise. So that's, uh, you know, that's, that's a really fun part of, I think, being a doctor. And it's probably the greatest gift that being a physician has to offer, offer a physician. Mm-hmm. And, you know, of course, the follow-up to that question is, um, what's your least favorite part about it? Uh, there's a lot of pressure. It, there's a lot of pressure, whether it's pressure to, you know, it's, it's, I'm Smith Facial Plastics, and so if I'm not healthy, um, 
the practice isn't going to do well, and so that's that's kind of a scary thing. So how do you how do you protect yourself from from those particular issues? I don't know. Um, uh, there are, you know, there's some there's some challenging patients that uh, you know you work your hardest to make make happy and and do your best and treat them as if you would treat a family member. But um, you know sometimes you, um, you know whether it's the expectations aren't realistic. Those are things that, as a person that's trying to please people, you know, are you know, profession perfectionistic mm -hmm. uh, to a certain degree. Um, it's it's frustrating when you when you don't always have somebody with a big smile. And I would say those are, those are rare and few and far between. But, you know, if you see 100 patients in a week and you have one that just wishes, you know, things were just a little bit better, then that's the person you think about mm. sometimes. Do you ever picture your life without that pressure, though? Because I think a lot of the things, when I look back at my life that I've gone through and have been the hardest in the moment, and they just seem like, just so daunting and, it, and in that second you're like man I can't believe I got myself into this like I look back and those were the almost the happiest points in my life because I felt so fulfilled even though it was extremely strenuous mentally I'd say to a certain extent and you know they do call it the practice of medicine and one of the things that I do and and I have a fellowship so I have somebody that spends a year and trains with me and I also uh, teach the Ohio State Dermatology ENT and plastic surgery residents and have over the years. But, you know, I, I say we, we have to work hard to get better at what we do every day. There's no resting on your laurels ever. And that requires close patient follow-up, longitudinal follow-up, long-term follow-up, um, because you have to know the things that you're doing work and are good. And if, and if they're not as good as you want them to be, um, you better figure out a way to get a little bit better at that technique or, you know, make some adjustments. So that's, that's the practice of medicine. And that's why continuing education is a big part of it, is, is there are changes and new ways of thinking and tackling problems, which are, you know, makes it an exciting profession. But, you know, one of the other things that happens over the course of time is, you know, you, you learn the limitations of your skill set and, and you do a better job communicating that to, you know, to your clients. Probably one of the final questions that we wrap up with, we usually, so the slogan um, that we represent across Conquering Columbus in the podcast is live uncomfortably. We usually ask what that means to you and your own relation to your life and kind of what experiences you've gone through that were uncomfortable and you kind of embraced it. And I think med school kind of described it for you. And I don't want to take um, the words out of your own mouth. So if in your head you feel differently, but I think on top of that question, what I'm interested in is kind of as you're going through those times, you've already kind of described it. What was your why and what pushed you to continue to live uncomfortably? Yeah, I'm definitely never comfortable. Well, actually, when I, when I lay my head down on the bed, I usually <laughs> am, I'm pretty comfortable. We've got a comfortable bed. But, um, you know, like I just referred to, you can't rest on your laurels and you can't be comfortable with, with yourself in the position that you're at. So I'm always, you know, trying to get better at what I do, um, whether it's as a coach of third and fourth grade girls lacrosse or as a surgeon or as a teacher or as a mentor or as a, you know, as a member of a, of a family, as a parent or a spouse. Um, I always try to be thoughtful about, okay, what kind of things could I be 
doing better. And so it's, I think it's important to take a deep breath every once in a while and just kind of check and see where you're at in each of those arenas so that you can, you know, so that you have the opportunity to be the best, you know, version of yourself that you can be. Um, am I perfect f so far from it that I've got, I've got so many things I'm working on right now, you know, in each of those arenas. And, uh, and that's why I'm, I'm not comfortable, but you know, being a wrestler, being a medical student, being a resident, uh, I think those are great ways to learn how to be perpetually uncomfortable. So I'm comfortable being uncomfortable. But as long as you got your coffee, everything's yeah, really that's okay. Right. Yeah. <laughs> but I think that's a great answer, Steve. Nate, we really appreciate your time today. I think that's where we're going to wrap up. Okay. But um, do you have any last words of advice for our listeners? No, I uh, I think you guys are doing a great thing. I'm excited to see a couple young wrestlers with a with a really kind of neat and unique uh, idea, and I appreciate uh, having the opportunity to be part of it. Yeah, we appreciate having you on the show. Josh, you got any last words before we uh, let go here? That's all I got. I'll take that's you it. down more rabbit holes that we don't like <laughs> down, so. All right, Conquerors, thanks for listening. Uh, we will talk to you guys next week. If you like that episode, check us out on Facebook, Twitter, Instagram, social media. We're all over the place, guys. Share it with your friends. Also want to ask you if you could do us a big favor, check out that podcast app you're listening to us on, and go ahead and click that subscribe button. Again, it really helps us out, and it makes sure you guys never miss a single episode of Conquering Columbus. Last thing we want to do before we let you go here is give one last shout-out to all of our incredible sponsors. And that starts with AWH. AWH are builders of exceptional digital products for the web and mobile that drive business for select growth companies. With over 4,500 applications developed and 10 million users enjoying AWH applications, they are focused on solving problems and improving lives through better software applications. If you want to find out more about AWH, check out awh.net, which will be linked in the show notes, and tell them Conquering Columbus sent you. Conquering Columbus is also brought to you in part by the Sundown Group. For those of you who don't know who they are, the Sundown Group is an Ohio nonprofit that helps connect entrepreneurs to investors, mentors, talent, and capital through business pitch events, workshops, and classes offered throughout Ohio. More information on the web at sundownfirst.org. And our last sponsor is Facilities Management Express, or FMX for short. FMX is actually founded and headquartered here in Columbus, Ohio. They're a startup software company. What's really cool about them is a lot of competitors in this space, but they made a name for themselves by designing an easy-to-use and tailored-fit facilities maintenance and management software. They serve industries ranging from churches and schools to property management, manufacturing, and fast casual restaurants. You can learn more and check out a free trial at gofmx.com. Mike here again. And if you want to be a sponsor of Conquering Columbus and have your message heard by conquerors across the city please reach out to me at mike at conqueringcolumbus.com there will be a quick survey in the show notes of today's episode and if you guys could fill that out for us we'd really appreciate it all right folks that's all we got we'll talk to you next week you could drop me anywhere on the planet in any environment and i might get you know my head kicked in in the beginning but i'll find a way to survive i'll find a way to get the job done yeah, there's a little doubt, but you know what? Once again, I think of that guy in my ear. I think about stepping up to the stage. I think about the challenge. Like, I've lost sometimes, but I've won more than I've lost. And so, like, I bet on me any day. Choosing greatness. Greatness doesn't choose you. You know, you have to choose it. 
and you know, it's hard. I think there was a hunger in me. There was a desire just to make a difference. There was a desire to not just be status quo, a desire to not be average. This is Conquering Columbus.